Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. Well, Lydia, on Thursday, February 8th, the Supreme Court will hold a special session to hear arguments in former President Trump's bid to appear on the primary ballot in Colorado. The Colorado Supreme Court said he was ineligible to be on the ballot due to his actions on January 6, 2021, leading up to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Joining us to chat about the case is Notre Dame law professor Derek Muller, who filed an amicus brief in the case highlighting important election issues that could be implicated by the court's ruling. So, Derek, to start, can you remind listeners why the Colorado Supreme Court said Trump couldn't be on the primary ballot? Right. So there was a challenge brought by voters essentially saying he's not eligible to hold the office of the presidency, saying that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment enacted right after the Civil War bars those who previously took an oath to support the Constitution and later engaged in insurrection against the United States, uh, bars those individuals from holding any office under the United States. And so the voters argue uh, Trump engaged in insurrection. He was a oath holder as president. He is barred then from serving in future office, including the office of the president. And the Colorado Supreme Court, looking at the factual findings of the trial court and agreeing with much of its legal reasoning, uh, said, yes, we, we agree. Trump is ineligible to serve, uh, to hold the office of the presidency, and he will be kept off of our primary ballot. Um, although, technically, they're going to let his name appear on the ballot while the case is on appeal in front of the United States Supreme Court. So, Derek, um, briefing by the parties and their amici have been filed in the case. Um, can you sort of explain for listeners what the principal arguments in support of former President Trump are? Yeah, so his brief really narrows many of the issues from the case below, just kind of sprawling to think about the number of elements that and the boxes that can be checked. He really leans pretty heavily into the argument that the office of the presidency is not covered by the text of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That is, the language refers to office under the United States, and his argument is that's a term of art that refers to appointed officers or lower officers in the United States. This does not apply to the president. And in fact, the text lists senator, representative, electors of president and vice president, and then other office holders. So his uh, argument that he's leading with is this textual one. Then there are some other arguments he raises, one to suggest that Congress has already sort of spoken in this area. It has an Insurrection Act, 18 U.S.C. 2383. Uh, That should be the way that people ascertain whether someone engaged in insurrection, not a five-day trial in a trial court in Denver. Another argument is to say, well, this applies to holding office. It doesn't apply to running for office. So we don't actually know whether Trump is ineligible until January 20th, 2025. And we'll find out, I suppose, uh, by then, because this is the rare disability that Congress can lift by a two-thirds vote. Even if he's ineligible, Congress can lift that disability and change the circumstances uh, of his ineligibility. Uh, And then finally, uh, two others, really. Uh, One is to say he didn't engage in insurrection. He spoke. He didn't march on the Capitol. Other people might have taken his words inappropriately and however they are, but he he didn't engage in insurrection. His speech was certainly protected uh, speech, he would say. And then finally, that Colorado got its own law so wrong that it essentially usurped the will of the people. And so the the Supreme Court should just reverse on a state law basis. So those are sort of the five principal arguments that Trump is raising. Yeah. One thing, you know, looking at the briefs that we noticed, um, you know, filed in support of the former president is that few argue that he 
he didn't actually um, engage in an insurrection. So I wanted to ask you about that. You know, instead they focus on these technical questions. So what do you think about that? Kind of why? Why is that happening or why are we seeing that? Yeah, so I think it's an understandable strategic point. And I think on Trump's campaign, too, they, they don't argue anymore that January 6th was not an insurrection, right? They, they've kind of abandoned that argument, too. There's a lot of deep in the weeds factual questions that you could get into and that I think the court is not interested in getting into, right? Um, the notion that the Supreme Court is going to spend most of its oral argument trying to debate what Trump was tweeting uh, rage tweeting in the days leading up to January 6, 2021, his state of mind, um, what uh, he intended with that speech, what kinds of, of speech talking about fighting was real and what was not. And, and those kinds of in the weeds, factual things, I think, are not going to be attractive for the Supreme Court. They're going to want to deal with this on a question of law as much as possible and stay out of those hot button political factual issues. I could be wrong, but I think that's why the amicus are also not moving in that direction. They realize it's not as, as strong an argument for the court to, to consider. So Derek, there are a number of amicus briefs in this case supporting neither party, um, including the one that you filed. Why do you think that is? What are What is it that these briefs are trying to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I'll just mention mine briefly. You know, I'm, I'm trying to highlight just a couple of outer bounds of the court's approach to say, look, states have excluded ineligible candidates in the past. States are not obligated to exclude ineligible candidates. So as you're writing this opinion, be careful <laughs> that you're not overstating or overclaiming what state power is or isn't and, and to be aware of uh, some other messy issues that can arise if Congress is asked to weigh into these matters, whether it's by legislation or on January 6th or on January 20th. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of cautionary things that you see here. But I think part of it is when you're dealing with a hot button political issue like this, right? And, and you know, we can say that all decisions of the Supreme Court have some political valence, but this is, does the front runner for the Republican nomination appear on the ballot or not? That's a very precarious partisan issue to address. And I think there are a number of people and a number of scholars that want to weigh in and say, look, we want to stay in our lane with some specific things that we're talking about. And we just want you to be aware of the challenges and the complexities in front of you. Um, so that's what I've tried to do. And some other scholars have done this as well. So professors Ned Foley and Rick Hassan and uh, Ben Ginsburg, a Republican attorney, sort of filed a brief saying, listen, we might have some different views on these issues, but I think there's an important role for the court to play here to provide guidance, to provide certainty and stability. So you see some briefs moving in sort of an institutionalist direction to say, we don't want to pick sides in this and look like we're, we're particularly favoring one outcome or another in this really partisan dispute. Um, but we want to highlight the concerns that we have about the law and provide you, you know, some things to think about as you're uh, rendering a decision. I guess, you know, I wanted to ask you about that. A lot of these briefs are, you know, kind of speaking in this cautionary way. I guess, what is the big concern? Like, if the court goes too far, like, what's the what's the thing that's making everybody so worried? <laughs> well, I mean, I think everyone's worried about different things. This is a problem with this case, right? Um, so uh, I think, on the one hand, supporters of former President Trump would say, look, this is madness to have 50 states doing 50 different things and 50 different proceedings. And this is the kind of chaos that we're worried about. And on the flip side for the respondents, they're saying that's not the chaos. The chaos is you as the court kicking the can down the road and saying, oh, this is a matter for Congress to decide or somebody else to decide later. This is a matter for 
presidential electors to behave faithlessly in December and vote for someone else, or this is a place for Congress to throw out electoral votes in January and potentially send an election to the House of Representatives to choose a president. And so so you see different caution from, from each side worrying about what they describe as chaos. And then in the middle, likewise, some of those briefs highlighting some of the concerns about what happens if the court fails to say enough or if the court defers to some other actor. Um, you know, other ways that the court could defer would be to say, well, this is a primary election. We're going to wait to see what happens in the general. Or we think that this is moot because his name is on the ballot already in Colorado. So why are we getting into this dispute? So all of those things are, are people pressing the court to render a decision that will provide greater clarity through the election, regardless of which way it comes out. Hmm. So before we talk a little bit more about your brief, I wanted to just kind of, um, you know, finish the circle here and talk about the arguments that are being made in support of keeping Mr. Trump off the ballot. Those all came in yesterday. Uh, we're, we're recording this on Thursday. So if you've gotten a chance to look at them, sort of what are kind of the primary arguments that are being made on that side? Yeah, those arguments starting from the the top. I mean, first to say, Office of the United States was widely understood uh, when the 14th Amendment was enacted to embrace the office of the president. And it would have been absurd to think that Jefferson Davis could have turned around from the Confederacy and become president of the United States, and that it's kind of an over-hyper-literal reading of language like the preposition under, and how that fits into the office under the United States, right? Uh, so I think there's a strong emphasis in some of the history and just some maybe argument from absurdity. Uh, then there's the argument that Congress is not the exclusive actor here, that states have enforced Section 3 and we don't have to defer to Congress or wait for Congress to weigh in. Another is to say, look, yeah, the, the prohibition is on holding office, but states can say, look, if you are ineligible, we're going to keep you off the ballot. We have an interest in keeping ineligible candidates off the ballot, and things can always change. We could amend the Constitution between now and the election, and, and things could change. So it, this ballot access rule allows states to engage in reasonable rules based on present circumstances. And if he's presently disqualified, uh, then we can keep him off. Uh, on the facts, they look at engaging in insurrection and saying, first, you should defer to what this trial court said in these findings or extensive findings. You had five days of hearings. Um, and his speech was incendiary. And the days leading up to it was deliberate speech uh, designed to provoke a mob. And after the mob began, the president didn't try to stop it and really sat back for an extended period of time and kind of tacit approval. So it really is an insurrection that he engaged in. His speech is not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, there's maybe some criminal incitement protections you have, but this isn't a criminal statute. This is a, a provision of the Constitution that provides kind of a civil disability for holding office. And then finally saying, look, Colorado law, you might disagree with the outcome, but it's not so wrong that you need to step in and second guess what state courts are doing. So I, I'd say that's how the, the briefs have gone and, and a lot of the amici uh, supporting th those positions, you know, filed filed yesterday, filed on, on Wednesday, January 31st. Yeah, noticeably missing from the briefs, though, are the views of the Biden administration. And I'm just wondering if you're surprised that they decided not to weigh in here. Yeah, well, there was uh, some public pressure, I would say, earlier in January to suggest that the Solicitor General's office really ought to weigh in in this case. Uh, you're dealing with some major questions of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, its scope, 
how the court interprets the word office of the United States has potential application to other places in the Constitution. It has implications in administrative law cases about the appointment and removal of officers and things like that. You are dealing with questions of federal power and congressional power about how much certain issues might be reserved to the federal government as opposed to allowed to be played out by the states. So you have a lot of issues that you would think the Solicitor General would have a pretty significant interest of wanting to weigh in on, even in, you know, sort of in support of neither party, providing some guardrails somewhere on some of these issues. But they did not weigh in. And I think, uh, you know, when you're dealing with such a hot button political case where it's the Biden administration's potential or likely (laughs) party opponent, Republican Party opponent in the general election, Uh, It's a fraud issue to say, should we weigh in uh, at all? Uh, Do we want to be suggesting anything that could be handicapping this candidate, which could be fodder in the political realm? So again, just for the same reasons that the Supreme Court is placed in a precarious position deciding this case, the Attorney General's office is placed in a precarious position and it chose not to participate at all, which you know, is disappointing. I think General Prelogger is a very skilled advocate and has a lot of thoughtful briefs that she files. And we don't have those views in this case uh, and the views of the federal government. Let's dig into your brief a little bit. Um, It sort of has, I guess, sort of two parts to it. The first is that states can, but they don't have to review qualifications for presidential candidates. Can you talk about um, that argument and why you think that it was important to, you know, highlight for the justices? Yeah, so I filed in both Minnesota and Colorado below on this issue to emphasize the courts, there's this middle way, right? Um, On the one hand, you have the Trump campaign pressing saying states shouldn't do this. In some versions of the argument, can't do this, don't have this power. And I said, I don't think that's right. They administer presidential elections. They have a lot of breadth to that power. Uh, They have very few checks on that power. They can't engage in racial discrimination. They can't add qualifications, whatever it might be. But there's a lot of flexibility. And stretching back for at least 50 years, you can find instances where states have kept candidates off the ballot, candidates who are 21 years old, candidates who are Nicaraguan nationals, right? So they've done this for a long time and setting up that side. But on the flip side, and the the voters had argued this, but this argument's also been mostly abandoned, has to say, well, there's this duty that states have, including duty that election administrators and secretaries of state have to ensure that only qualified candidates appear on the ballot. And I said that's not true at all either. That uh, first off, for 100 years in the United States, we didn't print ballots by the state. The This ballot was printed by parties or individuals. So they didn't even control the names that appeared on the ballot. And since then, you can trace back, you know, for decades, ineligible candidates who have appeared on the ballot. Again, that 21-year-old the Nicaraguan national kept off in some states are put on the ballot in other states. So it's to highlight that there's this flexibility that the states have. And, um, you know, maybe it's a little less salient here because the decision's already been made that state had the power under state law to do it and has done so. Um, but, you know, I've done a lot of this work on the issues. And I said, let's set up these guardrails, at least on one side or the other, to say, don't go too far in one direction or another. Ensure that states have some flexibility, but don't say they have the obligation. You know, the second part of your brief here is kind of, at least I think it's you saying, hey, court, don't mess this up. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so given that, um, I was wondering if you could explain kind of that argument um, that you're making in that on that side. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of raised three points about the scope of the court's ruling and issues it should be concerned about, issues that I haven't um, 
had strong enough views on and haven't written about enough before this episode arose for me to feel confident as a scholar that I should be weighing in on one side or the other, but to highlight their issues to be worried about. Um, so one is I raised an issue that courts and federal courts in particular look at state laws that burden the right to vote under kind of a sliding scale of what's the burden placed upon the voters and in some places the candidates up against the state's interest. Um, and I point out, look, this hasn't really been examined below, but to me, I think there's a pretty significant burden in requiring presidential candidates to go state by state to justify their qualifications and maybe subjecting them to a five-day trial is a pretty onerous burden. Um, but on the flip side, Colorado binds its electors. It tells its presidential electors when they vote, they have to vote for the winner of the popular vote. And if you're binding your electors and you're forcing the state to see these names on the ballot that, that the electors are going to vote for, the state has a pretty good interest in making sure only eligible candidates appear on the ballot. So I, I flagged to the court that this is something it should be concerned about. Uh, another is this notion about uh, the, the, the holding office argument. And it's a version of this under Section 3, the, the power to hold office uh, versus running for office. And I say, you know, I think given that states have excluded ineligible candidates in the past, 21-year-olds and, and the like, uh, it, it seems that that's okay. But what do you do with the candidates who could become eligible, uh, the 31-year-old or the 33-year-old who will turn 35, uh, for instance, is one of those. You can just say her name. You can just say Taylor Swift. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Or the uh, or the uh, candidate who's an insurrectionist, where Congress could lift the the, the, the disqualification. That, that's a hard question for me. If you judge the candidacy too early, the qualifications too early, and they can meet them later, it seems like you're adding qualifications, which we said you're not supposed to do. At the same time, if the state doesn't disqualify the candidate, Congress might turn around on January sixth and throw the votes out, and that's not great for the state either. That they have to wait and see. So. I flag this as sort of a, a cautionary tale for the court. And then finally related to that point saying there are arguments that you uh, are asked to say that this is a matter left for Congress. Congress can enforce the provisions of Section 3, can identify who's an insurrectionist, it can do all those things. So, you know, there are other congressional powers. We have to be careful when we're saying let's defer to Congress because on January 6, 2025, Congress will be asked to count electoral votes. And if Trump has a majority, there's a very real likelihood that Democrats will object and say, we're not going to count these electoral votes because he's not an eligible candidate. And that's its own fraught, challenging situation. And another, you know, I won't get down the rabbit hole of it very deep here, but the, the 20th Amendment of the Constitution, not one that we've spent a lot of time talking about, has a provision that says if a candidate has failed to qualify, the president, the, the vice president becomes the acting president. That failed to qualify language is also hanging out there. So... The, the, the concern for the court here, I flag, is whatever you say about this congressional power, recognize that you need to be precise and that there are potentially other exercises of congressional power down the road after the election that you need to be cognizant of. Whether or not you, you say there's congressional power or not, just be aware that those things are potentially issues that are coming. All right. So we've talked about the 5,000 ways that the court could decide this case. <laughs> now, what are they going to do? <laughs> A fraction of which they'll talk about on February 8th. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm very interested to see what they do on, on February 8th, the oral argument. I think they've got so many issues, but I think the pressure is to decide this quickly. And so I think they're going to be speaking to each other more explicitly than you might see at other oral arguments to say about what, what they... what 
uh, direction they want to go. Um, I think this is a very hard case for the Trump campaign, to be frank, at this point. Uh, there are None of these arguments are great ones for them. But at the same time, there's a, there's a kind of political reality that I think people are looking at to say, would the court really keep this front runner for the Republican nomination off the ballot and let that play out? So I don't know. If, if, I, if I'm predicting, I think the court is going to look for something narrow. They're going to look for something legal. Right. So none of this factual development or and they're not going to look for something specific to Colorado. Um, and if it's something, you know, something like this distinction between running for office and holding office, something that lines up closer with some of its precedent is a little bit more election law oriented than Section three oriented, uh, does defer and kick the can down the road to Congress. But feels like maybe maybe an area the court is is interested in. And the Republican Senate committee had, had a brief filed by Jones Day that really pressed this point. And I think one of the more um, interesting briefs for parties to look at if they're thinking about ways that the court might go if it rules in Trump's favor. Um, so that's the argument that I'm principally watching for, for next week's oral argument. You know, it's just interesting to me. I think that initially when this case sort of came up, um, you know, there were a lot of people on the other side saying this is going to be, a, you know, looks like it might be a place where the Supreme Court can rule for for the Trump campaign. And it seems like as the briefings come in, that's that's sort of changed. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the narrowing of the arguments, I think the way the the Trump campaign has argued this case um, has been kind of from a defensive posture and a con law posture. Uh, you know, some of these things were raised in 2022 with members of Congress. It's worth noting uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn had their candidacies challenged. And there was a very different legal strategy from a different legal team. It was proactive. It was filing parallel litigation in federal court. It delayed the proceedings. It was somewhat successful on that front. Um, it raised some of these election law issues that got some traction with some federal courts of appeals judges. Um, that's not how this was preceded. Uh, this has been much more of a defensive posture and much more leaning very heavily into these constitutional law arguments. And um, again, it's not clear to me that leading with this definition of officer in the United States, it's going to be a hard one for a majority of the court to coalesce around. And it's and it's been a, an interesting strategy to see that come out as the principal argument. So there will be a reply brief on Monday, February 5th filed, and we'll see a little bit more if they're choosing uh, which things they want to target signal for the court's attention ahead of oral argument. But I think it's going to be a lot of questions and an interesting uh, argument next week. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us to break down the arguments in Trump versus Anderson. Uh, you know, we'll be we'll be watching. A couple of other things that we wanted to touch on before we wrap today's episode. First, we promised to give an update to the execution that we talked about on the last episode. As a reminder, Alabama death row inmate Kenneth Eugene Smith had asked the justices to delay his execution in which he was set to be the first person executed using nitrogen hypoxia. Uh, but ultimately, the court in a 6-3 decision denied that request and cleared the way for the execution, which did take place later that evening. Now, the state said it was, quote, a textbook execution, but witnesses say that Smith struggled and gasped for air for several minutes. Notably in her dissent, Justice Sotomayor said Smith was being treated like a guinea pig. And I think this makes it more likely that other states may now be looking to carry out executions via nitrogen hypoxia as they encounter hurdles to lethal injection, um, whether it be access to the drugs they need to, to carry that out or, as happened with Smith himself, difficulty in carrying out the injection itself. 
That's right. Part of what Smith was claiming in his pleas to the justices is that he's developed PTSD following Alabama's botched attempts to execute him the first time via lethal injection, and that he'd therefore be more likely to vomit during the latest execution attempts and risk choking to death in a painful manner. He also had other arguments about wanting to pray aloud and that the the mask that uh, administers the gas that he would be breathing in um, would disrupt his ability to do that. But ultimately, the justices rejected that request. Um, But Lydia, they are considering another emergency request, this one involving the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. What is going on with that one? That's right, Kimberly. The court was asked to step in and stop West Point from using race as a factor in its admissions decisions um, with a preliminary injunction. That request came from a group called Students for Fair Admissions, um, and it actually asked the court to act by Wednesday, January 31st, which is when the school stops accepting applicants and starts choosing the students it'll admit for the incoming class. Um, Students for Fair Admissions. Interesting. I feel like I've Heard that name before. Yeah, ring a bell. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this is the same group that brought a challenge last term in which they successfully fought to end affirmative action at public and private universities. So now this group has come back to the court and saying, hey, West Point, you are violating that court's June decision. But Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger said that that argument ignores the fact that the court specifically said in a footnote that it wasn't addressing the policies at military academies because of the, quote, potentially distinct interest, end quote, um, that they may present. You know, in urging the court not to jettison West Point's admissions here, she said that military leaders have determined um, that a diverse army officer court is essential to develop an effective fighting force and that achieving that diversity requires them to consider race in a limited fashion uh, and in order to select its candidates at West Point. All right, Lydia. So, um, you know, we heard a lot of important things there. Let's uh, let's continue talking about um, Taylor Swift, right? Yeah. Trump's really angry about that, but uh, she is more important. Can we just definitively everyone agree? (laughs) So while we were having our interview with Derek, our producer did some, you know, timely fact-checking and just wanted to note for listeners here that Taylor Swift, while she is currently ineligible to be present because she is 34, she would turn 35 in between the election and inauguration. So I'm just saying, you know, keep it top of mind, people. That's right, Lydia. And that's going to do it for today's episode. Be sure to follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. See you next week. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know, but you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.